there's a lot of controversy right now about how can we make chemical innovation more efficient, more predictable, as protective as we believe EPA wishes it to be and as protective as all manufacturers wish their new chemicals to be, but without unduly burdening these innovative new chemicals in a way that thwarts innovation. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, like last year, we're going to have another series, a 12-part series. This year, we're going to concentrate on environmental law, where we'll cover the cradle-to-grave treatment of chemicals and our laws on environmental biology. In this first episode, we're going to spotlight the Toxic Substances Control Act, as well as the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act that address the manufacturing, processing, and distribution, use, and disposal of commercial and industrial chemicals. To speak more on this topic, our guest today is managing partner of Bergeson and Campbell PC, Lynn Bergeson. She's earned an international reputation for her deep and expansive understanding of TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, as well as the European Union REACH program, known as the Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals. Welcome to our show, Lynn. Thank you, Craig. I really enjoy being here. Well, Lynn, I've read through your resume. It's absolutely amazing. You've certainly developed an enviable reputation in chemical and pesticide regulatory work. And as we mentioned in the introduction, a particular experience in nanotechnology. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got involved in this practice area? Thank you for those kind words. Um, I have been practicing in the chemical space for many years. As some of your listeners may know, both TOSCA, the industrial chemical law, and its counterpart in the pesticide biocidal space, FIFRA, are statutes that are managed and kind of regulated out of Washington. They're not delegated to the states like the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, RICRA, and so forth. So I moved to Washington about 40 years ago, love the policy, legislative, regulatory space, and decided to drop my anchor in working on chemical laws, largely because that's the the epicenter of the universe, Washington, D.C. And of course, our consulting affiliate has offices in in, uh, Brussels, where we take care of the European side of the chemical equation. But once I became um, engaged in Tosca and FIFRA, there was no looking back. Uh, We started Bergeson and Campbell back in the early 90s and decided to address problem solving using all of the resources and capabilities that chemical law policy and regulation require. So our staff consists mostly, Craig, of non-lawyer professionals consisting of exposure assessors, toxicologists, PhD chemists, and regulatory scientists, and lawyers to help frame the issues as they arise under TOSCAFI for REACH and so forth. Uh, It's a fascinating practice. We have grown. We have almost 55 people now focusing only in the chemical space in Washington. 
There's lots and lots and lots going on, and we love what we do. So I hope that's helpful in terms of how we practice, who does it, and why we have such a diverse team of lawyers and non-lawyer professional scientists. It is, and certainly a complementary group of people given this subject area. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit, just generally speaking, about Tosca and its purpose in the scheme of regulatory framework that deals with chemicals from, as we talked about in the beginning, from cradle to grave? Sure. Well, Tosca was originally enacted in 1976, now 40-some years ago, right? And it was intended to address the absence of regulation at that time to the import, manufacture, and distribution of NEAT, meaning pure chemical substances. Uh, we, we had emerging environmental statutes with, the, with NEPA, with the Clean Air Act. 1976, as you probably know too, was the same year that RICRA, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, was um, enacted into law. CERCLA was still a twinkle in Congress's eye, but there was no federal management scheme relating to the manufacture of industrial chemicals, nor did EPA uh, then have authority to regulate or to compel the production of scientific data on chemicals, to ensure that chemicals coming into the United States from outside the United States met certain safety standards. Uh, EPA had no ability to track the distribution of neat chemical substances once they arrived or were produced in the United States. So Tosca was intended to fill that void. So it kind of bumped along from 1976 to 2016, largely as a chemical, industrial chemical manufacturer's law. Tosca, in the grand scheme of things, was thought to be very niche, a little bit quirky, and not well understood, both by lawyers practicing in the space, in the environmental space, and by M&A and transactions lawyers as well. I, I recall many deals in which we've been involved doing due diligence where Tosca and its counterpart, FIFRA, are often kind of overlooked as areas of potential liability because they're just they were never mainstream like clean air, clean water, RICRA, CERCLA. Everybody knows those statutes. So in 2016, Congress completely revised, revamped, strengthened, and modernized TASCA. And since 2016, there has been a tsunami of regulatory developments that has really extended the jurisdictional reach and relevance of TASCA as a an exceedingly important federal law that lawyers in multiple spaces need to be aware of and monitor on behalf of their clients. Sure. And when it did start out, it was largely responsible for what our manufacturing clients know mm-hmm. as the manifest system, right? Well, the manifest system is largely attributed to the Resource Conservation Recovery Act. In the United States, we have something called pre-manufacture notices for new chemicals and for existing chemicals, if they are imported into the United States or distributed in the United States or manufactured and then distributed in the United States, you you really don't have a, a lot of paperwork associated with moving it from A to B. The manifest system or versions thereof are used as commercial paper to track the distribution of chemicals in commerce. EPA has lots of authority under TOSCA to compel 
the submission of information regarding what you're producing, where you're producing it, who's being exposed to it, and how do you track it when you're moving it from A to B to C until it's ultimately consumed or used in the processing and manufacture of a product, which, of course, that's what all chemicals are for, right? They're feedstock ingredients to produce the products and goods and services and electronics that make our lives as convenient as we now enjoy. So a version of the manifest is definitely part of it, but it's a little bit different than the manifest, which is largely associated with the tracking of industrial waste under RICRA. Right. RICRA is the tail end of the Exactly. System. Exactly right, Craig. So in the, in the birth of chemicals, how does Tosca affect the development? Like Dow Chemical, for example, says we're going to create a new chemical and poof, here it is. How does that chemical process through Tosca? That, that is an excellent question and a very controversial one these days. Once upon a time, when Tosca was first enacted into law, and EPA, the federal agency that implements the law, was tasked with implementing regulations, EPA took the position under the law that existing chemical substances, those chemicals that existed back in 76 and more specifically 78, when EPA created what is called the chemical inventory, which is just a great big giant list of some 88,000 chemicals uh, that have been listed as used commercially in the United States. Okay. So back then in 76, all the way up to 2016, if you used, manufactured, imported, or distributed a chemical that was on that inventory list, there were largely few regulatory measures that applied to those chemicals, which has been the source of considerable controversy and debate and one of the reasons why Tosca was so significantly amended in 2016. But if you want to innovate, and there's so much chemical innovation going on right now, very exciting stuff, largely to make the world more sustainable, greener, better, cheaper, faster, whatever. If you want to innovate a new chemical before 2016, you submitted a pre-manufacture notification, largely waited 90 days, which is the statutory time frame within which EPA must render a decision. And then most chemicals were reviewed and either added to that inventory list and considered existing and hence could go about its merry way and live happily ever after, or if EPA discovered some toxicological or environmental fate goober, it would regulate that through the issuance of a consent order that ultimately matured into a significant new use rule. And we won't go into all that stuff, but we have lots of stuff on our webpage to talk about SNRs and SNUNs and PMNs and the whole wonderful alphabet soup of, of, of Tosca. It, it can be a nightmare, can't it? Well, it, it, it can be somewhat dense, and, and we Tosca nerds enjoy talking about this stuff. But at a 3,000-foot above level, in 2016, Congress amended Tosca to now make it more challenging to innovate new chemicals. Because now, instead of submitting a PMN, a pre-manufacture notice, the agency must make an affirmative determination as to the risk that a new chemical might pose. So it either poses no, there's no reasonable, or no reason to believe it poses an unreasonable risk. The agency lacks sufficient information to make that determination and either seeks more information or imposes restrictions on the chemical 
or determines that it, it really is not ready for prime time and, you know, the PMN is, is withdrawn. So that, that change has made commercializing and innovating new chemicals, Craig, immeasurably more difficult, time-consuming, and uncertain as to its commercial viability. And that's where the, the, uh, there's a lot of controversy right now about how can we make chemical innovation more efficient, more predictable, as protective as we believe EPA wishes it to be and as protective as all manufacturers wish their new chemicals to be, but without unduly burdening these innovative new chemicals in a way that thwarts innovation. Well, Lynn, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by managing partner of Bergeson and Campbell, PC, Lynn Bergeson, and we are spotlighting the Toxic Substances Control Act. And we've been talking right before the break about the use, particular use of chemicals and the controversies that have arisen as a consequence of the recent changes. Well, not that recent now, but Lynn, what happened with the so-called Lautenberg, I think it's pronounced, mm -hmm. uh, amendments in 2016. Well, in 2016, on June 22nd, then President Obama signed the Frank R. Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act. We, we all call it Lautenberg or New Tosca. And because the law has many different triggers in it, EPA was and is required to engage in dozens of rulemakings that ultimately give expression to Congress's intent, but also form the, the framework for the new chemical program that Lautenberg inspired. So since 2016, which, Craig, to, to those of us in the space, seems like yesterday, <laughs> and I know we're recording this in 20, 2023, but there has just been dozens and dozens of rulemakings that have really significantly impacted manufacturing practices in the United States. Uh, so even this year, coming down the first quarter of 2023, we're looking at the asbestos risk management rule should be coming out. We have the PFAS reporting rule coming out. 
We have EPA's uh, revisitation of TSCA fees that we're submitting comment on uh, next week. So although the law was signed into um, action in 2016, its, its impact is really being felt every month in material ways, in ways that manufacturers of products and offshore chemical producers need to be aware. And for those of your listeners in the M&A space, transactions, real estate attorneys, uh, entities representing the electronic sector, automotive sector, paint and coatings, any industrial sector having any material component that rests or includes industrial chemicals has a dog in this fight. It's um, very, very interactive, very fast-changing, and lots and lots and lots going on. And then you put the patina of sustainability and climate change on top of all that. Um, you're looking at an increasingly sophisticated supply chain that is much more inquisitive now about the chemicals that are being sourced to them, whether or not any contains a PFAS or a phthalate or any of the pantheon of super nasties that the agency, you know, has uh, in its sights, as it were. Well, one of the things that particularly interests me is that your firm has come out with a 2023 forecast of the regulatory environment in this particular area. And as an environmental litigator, I, I handle the contamination litigation side of it. Mm-hmm. I've seen over the years a big swing between uh, administrations. And I noticed in your forecast that you had a similar observation. We often, and thank you for mentioning that, Craig, you're very kind to do so. We put a lot of effort into our 100-plus page forecast uh, where we try to handicap what's going to happen in the United States and in most mature markets around the world in the chemical, industrial, and biocidal markets. And we do make a point of emphasizing that given the leadership in the White House right now and the divided Congress, we're likely to have a different regulatory experience in 2023 and 24 than what we had in 2021 and uh, uh, 2020, largely because we appreciate that congressional oversight has a very significant impact on directionally what EPA does with regard to setting policy and implementing relatively new laws like TSCA. So we spend a lot of time in our forecast just speculating on enhanced oversight hearings that are probable in 2023 with regard to TSCA implementation, uh, EPA's management of the new chemicals program, which is the program that administers review of new, new chemical innovations and technologies, and, and similar issues, how EPA is conducting risk evaluations. Uh, as I noted earlier, the first risk management rule will come out. Uh, which is precedent-setting. EPA will be letting the world know how it intends to manage the unreasonable risk associated with asbestos. And then probably after that, methylene chloride. These are all chemicals that everyone knows and recognizes, but EPA hasn't yet implemented in final a risk management rule. So we in the TASC community are all excited about what it's going to look like, what judicial challenges we expect, how might it pretend risk management uh, framework for forthcoming uh, risk evaluations for the other 10 priority chemicals and the 20 that are in the queue. So there would be much to learn from that rule, even though asbestos is, as you know, a somewhat unique 
chemical with a challenging legacy that will probably be subject to unique restrictions because of that legacy. Right. Well, then again, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Hey, Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by attorney Lynn Bergeson. We've been discussing General Tosca. Lynn, I know that there are, just to jump back to the generalities for a moment, there are certain things that are not regulated by Tosca. What are those? Tosca regulates industrial chemicals. But of course, we all know that chemicals are deployed to many different markets, The Food and Drug Administration, for example, manages food, food additives, materials that are in direct or indirect contact with food, cosmetics. Uh, So anything that falls into the jurisdictional bucket of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act is explicitly not regulated by TSCA. Similarly, our, our friends in the Uh, pesticide world. If a chemical is designed to achieve a pesticidal potency or to deploy its pesticidal properties on a pest or a bacteria or a microbe, um, those are all subject to the jurisdictional provisions of the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Redundicide Act. There are are a couple of other specific exemptions from TSCA, firearms, uh, ammunition, stuff like that. But those of us- Cosmetics. Yeah, drugs, cosmetics, and um, food are all subject to FFDCA, pesticide, antimicrobials, all subject to FIFRA, and then industrial chemicals are in that third bucket subject to TSCA. And of course, many chemicals have multiple functionalities, right? You can have a chemical that goes into the industrial market and a chemical that goes into the food use market. So I'm sure your listeners are mindful of how, depending upon the use of a particular chemical will dictate what jurisdictional bucket it resides and what regulatory provisions apply to that use. Right. And some of the chemicals that Tosca does cover are what commonly, as you mentioned, asbestos, PCBs that are found in transformers and the like, Mm -hmm. uh, radon and lead-based paint, some commonalities. But you 
One of the things that interested me is that there seems to be a change in the scope of Tosca from the standpoint of biology and nanotechnology. How has that expanded in those arenas? Well, the, the EPA has taken the position explicitly with regard to nanotechnology, which was a very big deal back in the um, early 2000s. Um, it, it came to EPA's attention that chemicals were being manufactured at a smaller and smaller and smaller scale to functionalize properties that could not be achieved at the bulk range. So with regard to the the type of technology, EPA has taken the position that TOSCA, for example, in industrial chemicals, applies, and the same provisions of TOSCA apply. But if you are engineering an existing chemical at a nano range, then there are, that is considered a new chemical substance for purposes of TOSCA. So EPA, I think, has done a very good job of integrating these expanding technologies and evolving technologies, because technologies evolve all the time. The technologies of yesteryear, when TOSCA was first implemented in 1976, are vastly different than they are now. So I think EPA has done a very good job of making the fundamental framework of the industrial chemical law sufficiently elastic through its implementation of policies and its own evolution of regulatory uh, frameworks and rulemakings to apply in ways that we don't need a new Tosca Nanotechnology Act, because that would never work, right? We, we could never get an increasingly dysfunctional Congress to periodically update all of our laws to accommodate newer and more precise technologies. So these older laws like TOSCA and FIFRA and FFDCA continue to apply, even though the technologies that they now regulate are vastly different than they were when they were first, when the laws were first enacted. So EPA has done a great job. FDA has done a great job. And of course, it's the same EPA, but different offices that manage TOSCA and FIFRA. You bring up a very interesting point, given the recent uh, series of decisions that have come out of the United States Supreme Court that have turned on the theory of originalism. When you look at the -hmm. interpretations of uh, the Constitution, there have been uh, the conservative justices have all said, you know, we're going to interpret these statutes, you know, this particular situation according to the statutes as they were originally written or as the Constitution was originally written. Yet you're praising the EPA and other agencies for you know, becoming elastic with the changes that have occurred as a result of technology. They don't mm-hmm. have a direct application to one another, but what are your thoughts about the interplay of uh, an executive branch agency like this taking these steps to grow with the times and the, our own Constitution being interpreted as it was written long ago? Uh, Well, I I credit the United States Environmental Protection Agency and the career staff there that have been devoted to applying all of the statutes to which they are, you know, tasked with implementing to do so in a way that accommodates the fast-changing technological evolutions that are part and parcel of their, their beat, as it were. So, you know, we talked a little bit about, well, if you have a new administration, the policies are going to change 
And they do, you know, how this EPA applies TSCA and defines risk evaluation is vastly different than the preceding administration. But throughout these changes of administration, there's been a core allegiance to the letter of the law and an appreciation that what Congress intended to do in creating EPA and expanding TSCA through the Frank R. Lautenberg Chemical Safety for the 21st Century Act and amending FIFRA back in 1996 when it implemented the FQPA, that at the end of the day, these laws are intended to protect human health and the environment. So I, I really credit the career EPA staff and the political appointees that are derivative of a diversity of administrations to embrace what these laws are intended to do and to be creative and nimble in deploying them in a way that achieves that core goal. That's the thread that is consistent throughout all of the administrations. And we lawyers in this space quibble over, well, is this more hazard-based or risk-based? And, you know, is EPA interpreting these provisions in a way that our clients think is appropriate? And reasonable people will disagree. And we disagree frequently and respectfully with EPA, but credit the agency for being, for curating these laws in a way that really does the, the best for human health and the environment. But it, it is a challenge and um, we don't always agree, but that's, that's where the, uh, that's the fun stuff, Craig. It sure is. Well, we're just about reached the end of our program. So I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts and your contact information. And I also want to take a moment to commend our listeners to your podcast, All Things Chemical, for a more in-depth view with the things we've just talked about have barely scratched the surface of what's available on your podcast. And it was, looks like a fantastic resource. I've listened to a couple of episodes and been very impressed. Well, thank you, Craig. You're very kind. And we've enjoyed doing all things chemical for the last uh, three years. We're approaching our hundredth. I know that pales in comparison to, to your commitment to the podcast space, uh, Craig, but um, we, we enjoy it. I urge um, anyone listening, if they wish to learn more about TOSCA, FIFRA, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, and all of the other ologies that our chemical laws apply to, to look at our webpage, uh, www.lawbc.com. The forecast that Craig was kind enough to mention is posted and downloadable. We have four or five blogs on Tosca, FIFRA, BioStuff, NanoStuff, REACH, our European counterpart. And for the listeners in the crowd that are interested in Tosca and don't know a lot about it, but are members of the, you know, the United States uh, legal community, take a look at some of the articles we have posted because Tosca is not what it used to be. And our clients are increasingly aware of the commercial pressures that are being brought to bear by EPA's focus on chemicals and their inclusion in products that we all know and love. So just happy to answer any questions if you add them to our, our web portal and uh, would be happy to get back to anybody should you seek more information. Great. I'd like to thank our guest, Lynn Bergeson, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Craig. Well, for our typical listeners, this episode has been highly technical and covers a specific act that deals with the beginning of environmental regulation of chemicals. 
from the cradle, as Lynn mentioned, all the way through the time that we dispose of them, also known as the grave of chemicals. This is a very interesting area of the law, one that is coming up more frequently, and many law schools have turned to creating particular programs to deal with this area of law. I know that the Vermont Law School and the University of California at Irvine have particular programs developed to train lawyers in this highly technical area of the law. A good solid background in biology or engineering or chemicals would serve you well if you're starting out in this area. Just to follow up a little bit on our series from last year, the start of life of a lawyer from start to finish. But this highly technical area of the law has a lot of facets to it. One of them that Lynn deals with is how it's regulated. Another one that I deal with is the litigation of contamination that results from the disposal of chemicals. So I'm really looking forward to this year's exploration, really, of this area of the law and delving into these environmental areas. I think you'll find it fascinating, technical, but fascinating. Well, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.